This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Today, a special on the future of football after the European Court of Justice sided with the Super League over UEFA. What does that actually mean? A Super League, perhaps? How would it work? Will top clubs ever leave their domestic leagues? And will the money ever run out? Will players eventually have to play every day? Will the climate crisis change everything? We'll discuss the effect of nation-state ownership and multi-club ownership and look at the implications down the pyramid. And can fans do anything? And is it all bad? Attendance is strong, the women's game is growing and are we just old or at least middle-aged fans yelling at clouds? Progress is progress. It just isn't the football we fell in love with when we were 10 years old. You've asked some excellent questions. We'll try and answer them on The Guardian Football Weekly. On today's panel, uh, Barney Ronnie, welcome. Hi, everyone. Philippe Auclair, bonjour, ça va? Ça va bien, Max, bonjour. And from the Price of Football podcast, Kieran Maguire. Hi, Kieran. Morning, Max. Uh, Red Jabby says, nice, a sci-fi fantasy special. Matty says, will there be a limit on players from outside of our solar system in 21-24's interplanetary Super League? Um, uh, well, we'll, look, we'll start with what the European Court of Justice ruled about the Super League, saying that FIFA and UEFA rules on prior approval of interclub football competitions, such as the Super League, are contrary to EU law. Um, basically means they sided with the Super League over UEFA, right? And and that is a good place to jump off from our, to ask the question that Greg has, which is how will football look in five years' time? You can pick five or 10 or 15 or, or, or whenever you like, Barney, but what will football look like, do you think? Well, it will look much like it does now, but also massively different, which is the usual process of this thing. Um, I mean, on that, that ruling in the, in the European court, it's important to keep it in its own within its own terms. Um, the EU is really interested in the market and in a kind of freedom which relates to trade and the ability to to work and to set up businesses and for money to move around. So they use words like abuse and uh, things like that, which sound terrible. Nobody was abused here. They're talking about an abuse of total market freedom. So what the ruling said was that in this case, and in I guess in other cases, uh, where FIFA and UEFA issue diktats forbidding members to do things without proper process, that is against EU law and EU principles. I mean, what they basically ruled is that what we know, that FIFA and UEFA are autocratic non-transparent, weirdly run uh, uh, ruling bodies of their industries. They didn't rule that a European Super League is necessarily uh, lawful and desirable and what EU law wants. They ruled that UEFA in particular had behaved inconsistent with the principles of European law in the way it acted in response to this proposal. They're not the same thing as saying a European Super League. Sorry, this is incredibly boring, but it's true. Um, the European <laughs> yeah. Super League. No, I agree. It is both boring and true. I was bored, but felt it was necessary. Well, it's just the truth is boring, unfortunately. Um, so they're saying that a transparent and proportionate framework must be set up to explore uh, things like this so that they might be possible in the future. What they're saying is you've got to behave properly and look at this properly. Uh, all that's been decided is you can't act irrationally, which we kind of knew anyway. On the other hand, I think uh, something interesting might happen in the next few years. Clearly, this hasn't gone away. And 
uh, in spring 2025, uh, we may get the Manchester City Premier League ruling. Uh, there may then be an appeal, depending on what happens. And you wonder in 2026 how loyal clubs will feel towards the Premier League or towards domestic football, towards existing structures, how loyal certain groups of fans will feel and how it would go down if another kind of, hey, don't let these elites tell you what to do, sort of Trumpian, more Trumpian Super League was proposed. Um, uh, it's going to happen. There will be... Um, there will be some kind of Super League. It's entirely inevitable. It's in keeping with everything else in the world. The Premier League is already a Super League. Um, yeah, we already have one. Other people want a part of that. And I'll stop talking now. Kieran, do you do you go with that? There will be a Super League? Like so so what I'm what I'm imagining is what will my fixture list look like? When the fixture computer says, here are the games, like are Man City no longer playing Premier League football? Is that midweek? What what's What's happening? Or have the big six disappeared or big seven or however many bigs there are now and it's kind of a weird Premier League championship hybrid that is the Premier League so we're no longer interested in it? Answer those questions if you can. I think what we will see is increased pressure for a reduced Premier League that the bigger clubs in particular don't want to be playing the likes of Burnley, Sheffield United, Brighton, Palace. Yeah, we're, we're fully aware of that. Um, and that formed part of Project Big Picture, a reduction ideally to 16 teams, potentially 18. I think there will be continued pressure from that and there will be continued resistance from those teams. With regards to European football, I agree entirely with what Barney has said. The the aim of... Sorry, Kieran, I, I can't tell you what a relief that is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to relax now for the next 40 minutes or so. Sorry, I'm sorry, carry on. The, the, the aim of owners and prospective owners is, is to have a concentration of money, power and decision-making in, in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And I think that's that's reflective of a much broader issue in society today. We, we do have polarisation of wealth. Um, so the, the A22 proposals, which amazingly came out uh, nearly as quickly as Saudi Arabia's proposal to host the 2034 World Cup um, following FIFA's announcement, are just an attempt to, to create a, 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 as closed a shop as you can have with regards to football, nobody wants Leicester City to win the Premier League again, as far as the the wealthy clubs are concerned. And if they do, they would be penalised by going into the third tier of the, the new competition. And they would have so little money from that competition that they'd never be able to win the Premier League in the first place. So we, we will have uh, the A22 will be used as a bargaining chip, I think, by the bigger clubs to extract further and further concessions from UEFA, as we've seen over the course of, of the last decade or so. So it, it will be more of the same. The, the, the rich will become richer. The middle classes will become further detached and will just have to accept their lot. Al says, uh, why not get some balance on the show and have someone pro Super League? Um, do those people exist, Philippe, outside of like Madrid? Me. Your hand is... Do you do you approve? Yeah, here you are, Philippe, representing <laughs> the Super League. No, no, I've, I've done this kind of um, wargaming stuff in the, in the past. I remember doing it with Nick Harris. I, was, I had to pretend I was the new um, communications director of... Um, of the Qatari Football Federation. It was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Oh, I wish, I wish. I, I, w- I would tend to agree with um, with Barney and, and Kieran, actually. Um, I think we're going to have more of the same in, in many ways, but uh, everything becoming a bit of a caricature, if you see, like, the the, the line drawing of football, the, the 
the brush that's going to be used to do that is going to become thicker and thicker and thicker. And I totally agree with the idea. I don't think there will be a Super League. Um, there will be a Super League de facto, which will be the Champions League, uh, which is already changing, as we know, from next season onwards with the extra games. And this will continue to evolve because, in fact, what the ruling from the European Court of Justice has done is given clubs um, a means to go back to the old argument they, they kept using with UEFA in the past, which is, guys, if you do not give us more money, more opportunities to make money, we're going to secede and do something. So they can go back. They don't even have to say we're part of A22 or Super League Project. They can go to UEFA and say, guys, this is totally unacceptable. If you carry on like that, we're going to have to set up our own thing. Perhaps the Super League guys were right in the beginning. You know. And the other thing we're going to see is a rebalancing. And I, maybe that's a bit uh, dystopian, what I'm saying. But with the Club World Cup, the new form, a format which I think will have an absolutely huge impact on, on world football. I wouldn't be surprised if a Saudi club was world champion in 2029. And so rebalancing of, of power, financial power to, to the Saudi league. I, I really believe that. And uh, which is going to be to attract not just the Ronaldos and, you know, the Neymars of this world, but um, far better players or far younger players, sorry. Um, and be able to compete in a competition that's almost designed to suit them. Because as you might know, um, in the next um, new and not necessarily improved Club World Cup, uh, which will have 32 clubs from 2025 onwards, the number of places which are reserved for the Asian Confederation is such that I wouldn't be surprised if there were three Saudi clubs competing in it. Three. That's a lot. And I expect them to dominate Asian football, and I expect Saudi football actually to um, to be Saudi club football to become a real competitor. So that is the one thing that for me is a bit, little bit open ended. Where how far this is going to go? Am I being completely paranoid? Probably. Can it go that far? I think so. But we're going to see greater concentration of wealth, greater concentration of talent. Believe it or not, probably greater interest uh, from from people who are not like us and. And who, to whom this idea of football is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, showtime. Yeah, but but Barney is the club. I wonder if the Club World Cup had been going for like a hundred years. I think I'd probably like it. So like in, intrinsically, I sort of you know, if Liverpool played Boca Juniors and it was like they had a great history, I'd be like, oh well, this is exciting. Yeah, I don't I don't mind it as an idea. It's a, this is probably the voice that is required in this. <clears throat> someone who uh, isn't immediately. Uh, appalled by these current suggestions because uh, football does change. Um, somebody on when you put that question out on Twitter was saying, oh, "Are we supposed to all say the same?" It's supposed to be when you you were a kid, but it's not the same. You know, football changes all the time. Champions League is an entirely different competition to what it was even when it started becoming the Champions League. Uh, the Euros and the World Cup have changed, and they're pretty good. The Premier League is a relatively new idea. Everything it does change all the time. The game itself has changed. Um, the way it's played the, within the rules has changed. You only need to watch footage from when some sort of grand or much loved player sort of passes away or whatever to realize how much football has changed. What a different game it is, and that's a top-down curatorship making it into a TV product, which is uh, what is required. That's why it's so successful. The Club World Cup. If you're um, 16 years old um, and you watch most of your football on TV and it's just this great thing that keeps appearing on your stream and you love discussing it with online communities and all that kind of stuff. 
is a great idea and people just want more more product this will be really good product this will be teams i mean part of the um the resistance to it is a lack of established narrative and part of that comes from the media we love narrative we love stories we understand we love to go back to derbies and things like that um new teams playing each other probably seems quite exciting uh, in a new format different time of year and the the voice that's missing in this podcast is someone saying well what's the problem why shouldn't we remake things? Uh, if this, uh, there's a demand for this, uh, why not do it? I suppose the counter to that is that, uh, is there a demand for it? Football seems to be doing pretty well. The demand is from those in power. Uh, there's not a great groundswell of grassroots. Uh, people out in the streets demanding a Club World Cup. How can you deny us this? Um, it's, it's a demand from the uh, games administrators and those who, who stand to make political capital and money from it. Um, so that's the demand there. The, and the other problem is it's also a kind of close competition. You're, you're obviously creating something which is just going to be closer to, to rollerball, where you know six very well-known teams compete against each other and enrich each other even more every year. It depends what you... We all become socialists when it comes to football. A, a Club World Cup is the absolute opposite of that. It's basically saying every, every, the only things that are going to exist are going to be Coke, Pepsi, BMW and uh, Google. We revolt against that because we love the idea of sporting stories still, something in us, the things that are good about collective ownership and opportunity for everyone are good things and sport seems to express them. But um, that, that may be something that we take for granted. Um, uh, a club world, could be, world Cup could be excellent if there was a chance for every single club in the world to play in it, but that will not happen, can't happen, and it will end up just being the same product plastered across your TV screen every single year in the way we've seen happen in cricket, uh, which is a cautionary tale for football. We're confusing two things, I think. Here, One of them is change, which is organic, uh, follows naturally from what has happened before, and the other is transformation, which is imposed from the top, which is what we are seeing happening now. Um, like when professionalism comes into the game, it's because there are more people playing the game. There are more people coming to the to the grounds. There's more interest and so forth. Professionalism is quite normal. Then you organize professionalism, then internationalization, globalization. All of this is actually organic and still part of the same idea of football and together by the way preserving the pyramidal um, idea um, structure of the game and the ideas of relegation and promotion and all these things that we are very attached to what we're talking about here with the club world cup is completely different it's it's a different frame which is imposed on 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 the game which is imposed for reasons which have got nothing to do with sporting interest nothing to do with sporting demand i would even question whether it's going to be so successful economically speaking and for TVs I will question it because I don't have a proof that it will necessarily be a competition that is going to uh, take the world by by storm what I can say it is directly uh, it is a um, something that's been hatched by by FIFA and which is directly um, targeting UEFA and its Champions League that's all there is to it and uh, the the it's it's there. It's part of the power play. With this competition, they want to have the same to exert the same kind of power on the club game as they do on the national teams game, and that's all there is to it. So we're not talking about a change which is motivated by what is happening within the game itself. We're talking about something which is imposed without any consultation, any transparency, any accountability. Again, so. Yes, on one hand, we can say, oh, football has always changed, evolved with the times. Yes, but this is different. 
the organism, something, an, an external, a foreign body has been injected into um, a virus has been injected into the body of football and this virus is called FIFA. And the Club World Cup is one of the symptoms of the disease that is ravaging this body that we love so much, Max. If you take a look at FIFA accounts, and I suspect I'm the only person in this conversation that does that on a regular basis, you will see that FIFA loses money three years out of every four. And it is incredibly envious of UEFA. UEFA has the Champions League, which generates money every year. It has the Euros, which makes money every four every four years. It, it has the Nations League, which it isn't big unless England get to the final. You know, it's, it's one of those competitions. The Club World Cup is, is a great idea. The best of the best. You know, and it's taking place once every four years. So therefore, in theory, it could become like the, the National World Cup. It could become like the Olympics. It could become like the, win the Winter Olympics and so on. But there is that nagging thought that the only reason that FIFA have decided to expand it to this extent is because it, it sees it as a money-making opportunity. It, I agree entirely with, with the others in the sense that FIFA is an autocratic regime. Um, as, as somebody that had to be an expert witness in a court case against FIFA uh, last year, um, they're, they're a funny bunch, it has to be said. Um, and, and there's lots of them, and when there's only one of you. So it's, it's driven by money. It will mean that potentially, um, if it's a success in its in its expanded form, there will be more money to distribute to the individual football associations who vote for Gianni Infantino to be president. Did you yell, you can't handle the truth, Kieran? <laughs> uh, Not quite. No, no. <laughs> Shame on you. Anyway, that'll do for part one. Part two, we ask, will the money run out? Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Daniel says, everyone talks about the Super League being the problem. Why aren't people highlighting that the overspending on transfers and wages is what's driven the formation of the Super League? Declan Rice, over 100 million. We're talking about life-changing amounts of money for one player. When is the trend on players costing this much going to come back down? And when a club's going to realise it's not sustainable to just keep pouring money in at those levels? Kieran, I guess that's probably one for you. The, the amount of money that is spent on transfers as a percentage of the money that is generated by the game has increased from 33% to 35% since the Premier League was formed in 1992. So there hasn't actually been... Just that? That's, that's it. Wow. All of the focus is on the spending. Um, again, I, I will bore people with, with numbers here. Since the Premier League started, its revenue has increased by 2,600% at a time when prices have increased by 94%. It has been a spectacularly successful organisation. You've then got to say, well, it's got all of this extra money coming in. What's it going to do with it? Well, first of all, you've got an awful lot of clubs that say, well, we want to be a part of that. So therefore, we've got overspending in the championship to try to get into this this money-making vehicle. Once you get there, you've got an encouragement and an incentive to overspend because you don't want to go back to the championship. And at the top end, we've just been talking about you know, the Champions League and, and Super League and so on. The, the financial rewards of getting into the top four or top five potentially from next season um, are so great that you've got an incentive to overspend there. So this is simply a, a function of, of business. If there are huge rewards, then people will spend a large amounts of money to achieve those rewards. It's a bit like playing the lottery 
But, it, but instead of having a you know, a one in 140 million chance of winning, if you're a club in the championship, you've got, you've got a one in eight chance at the start of each season of getting an extra 100 million pounds. Well, how much would you pay for that lottery ticket? And, and it's driven by money, as, as all things are. But the overspending actually isn't as significantly different to where we were at the start of the Premier League. Barney, you, in, in the WhatsApp group, you sort of said that nation-state ownership is a sort of massive part of this, and we all know it is. I just wonder if you think that will that there'll be more nations that want to buy football clubs, that that will increase, or these nations might get bored of football and go somewhere else, and that will have a dramatic effect on them. I don't, I don't think anyone's going to get bored of football just yet. I mean, football... Um... You know, David Goldblatt wrote that, uh, what I found a probably very stupid, a very eye-opening sentence, that football has become the popular culture. It's crowded out everything else. So if you want to have a presence and a voice um, uh, and a kind of propaganda tool, it's football. Um, so I don't see ambitious nation states eagerly promoting alternative export economies as likely to get bored with football just yet. I don't. What could you? You could buy Taylor Swift, I suppose. You could, you could nationalise her in some way and use her <laughs> to promote your message. But it's easier to buy a football club because um, you know football clubs are active all the time and they have a. Well, they also come with a very biddable bunch of um, sort of online supporters who pump your message out there for you. The British government should buy a football club. I mean, this is the thing that always strikes me. If, if the if the UK government bought uh, Galatasaray and decided to make its away kit the England kit and to use Galatasaray to promote various messages about... You're sponsored by the post office, uh, by uh, (laughs) Network Rail on the T-shirts, stuff about travelling, the British tourist industry, and and our taxpayers' money being pumped into this thing by these kind of... No, maybe possibly inflated sponsorship deals... Um, we would say, what on earth are you doing? This is insane. Stop spending my money on trying to wash your image as a post-colonial power um, and make out that uh, it's all beef eaters and, and uh, you know, Paddington. Um, actually, Paddington could work quite well in that as well. It's sort of club mascot. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, if that was what the British government did, we would protest in the streets and say, this is ridiculous. Stop doing it. You're destroying the Turkish league and its integrity. But for some reason... Uh, it's okay for other governments to do that because um, everybody loves to see uh, an unelected royal family billionaire attacking the overclass and breaking down those barriers to power, which have for so long been um, has for so long been denied to them. So no, I don't think it's going to stop happening at all. I think it's a massive tension at the heart of the game, and it's a really big story. This is everybody wants to own football. That's the, the future of football. It's about ownership and control. And um, it comes out in tiny little things like referees going to moonlight in states where they're then refereeing a team owned by that state the next day, which are not implying corruption, but it doesn't look great, does it? And it's it's a real problem. Uh, The sport just dissolves as soon as these things are owned by countries because foreign policy is not fair. Foreign policy is not nice. Foreign policy doesn't stick to the rules. Why would an arm of your foreign policy uh, give a damn about the rules written by some guy called Nigel in a building somewhere in London about how sports leagues should be run? That's not how it works. The Britain, the British government does terrible things. The American government does terrible things all the time in its foreign policy because the ends justify the means. So why would nation states obey the kind of accountancy rules of some overseas sports league if it's not in the interests of their country? 
I wouldn't expect them to do that. And they shouldn't be owning football clubs if you want your football league to be a nice place where things work. Philippe, your, your hand is raised. So so uh, I'm going to ask you a question, but you can make your point as well, which is, are there other nation states that want to buy football? You know, have, have all the states got the clubs or are there other ones? Um, th- there aren't many others. Um, you can look at um, um, nation states which are... Um, uh, Investing in other sports, like you look in cycling, uh, you've got Team Israel, you've got Bahrain Victorious. I don't think that either of those nations, um, especially in the current circumstances, is going to move into football anytime soon. Uh, but what you're going to see, you're going to see more and more clubs becoming to states, which is not quite the same thing. Um, and by the way, when we say that, I think we're all the elephant in the room is, of course, Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates and Manchester City. We know the argument that the club doesn't belong to UAE. It, uh, it is the private property uh, of Sheikh Mansour. But then when you start realizing who Sheikh Mansour is and actually and the multiple links between the club and various organizations, companies and so forth based in the UAE, you have got perhaps a little bit uh, more of a realistic point of view on who they are. And for the sake of the argument, we'll, tell, we'll say they are an Emirati club. And the City Football Club, City Football Group, excuse me, is a template of what other nation states might want to do. And in fact, the Qataris have tried, not quite with the same gusto and success as the Emirates have done to create a galaxy of clubs which they own or control. But the City Football Club, City Football Group, uh, is by any stretch, I mean, by any standards, an extraordinary success. Financially, economically, in terms of propaganda, whatever you... You know, they've just um, added Bahia, I think, in Brazil, to their uh, stable of clubs, they've got clubs in 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 Japan, in India, in in Spain, in Australia, everywhere. I do think that the Qataris and especially the Saudis are going to follow the same route because this is another route which follow, football is following, which is one which is paved with a number of bad intentions, uh, which is the the path of multi club ownership and the fact that a club is is now it would be more and more unusual to see a club that is basically a standalone club like we understand them to be like a community club with a history and so forth it would be become much more common to see those clubs being part of a group an organization a galaxy and this is where i i expect not more nation states moving in because they're not don't necessarily have the impetus they don't necessarily have the cash either but they will own more and more of football directly and indirectly and i, and I guess kieran that means that you know, clubs who are desperately trying to keep up with them have to try and get money in from, you know, occasionally you see someone's done a deal, a sponsorship deal with a betting company that is a front and, you know, they've got a picture of someone's face that when you, someone really checks out who it is, it's, you know, someone who's just like <laughs> runs a small B&B in Cheltenham and has nothing to do with any of this sort of thing. I mean, like, like there is a desperation to get money from anywhere, right? So people cut corners. Yes, blind, blinded by the check. Um, is is the is the word I normally use? We, we see this more and more often. Um, football is the cheapest way of gaining global influence uh, in terms of any industry in the world. If if you take a look at Microsoft acquiring Activision in the gaming industry, that cost Microsoft seventy billion dollars. Well, PIF acquired Newcastle United for three hundred and five million. Yeah, that's what one two hundredth of of the price. And the, the 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 amount of attention. So if you want to get fame, notoriety, kudos, um, if you want to get a message across, buy a football club because it's 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 far cheaper than buying a newspaper because newspapers lose money um, and don't have that big an audience. You you can 
weaponize the fan base to support you um, because it is my football club, right or wrong, as far as the fan base is concerned. But my, my only concern is that if I, if I was a dodgy nation state, I wouldn't want anybody to know about all of the abuses that I'm doing domestically and internationally. And I, because we, we don't know yeah, what's happening in, in certainly in certain, some, some of the old uh, Russian republics and so on. They, they never come across our radar. And they, there's huge things taking place there, which are absolutely appalling. But because they're not involved with football, we, we, we don't. So if, if you want to sports wash, it's actually counterproductive because the very fact that there will always be discussions with regards to those regimes on the back of them acquiring a football club becomes counterintuitive and counterproductive. I don't think it is. I mean, I just think the word sports washing is a really bad word and we shouldn't use it. Um, I mean, it's not a bad word. It was coined for a reason um, by uh, Amnesty, I think, um, to, uh, to describe this process, to say, well, what's happening here? We need a phrase to describe it. But washing um, sounds quite sort of... Uh, gentle, doesn't it? It sounds like a nice thing. It sounds like you actually care to be seen as clean. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think my outrage counts for anything at all. I don't think um, a, a tweet storm of pointing out various contradictions. Oh, look, they said in the New York uh, court that they're a, a, an arm of the state, so they can't do discovery. Ha, ah, we've caught them in a contradiction. Actually, it turns out the BIF is related. Nobody cares. If you look at Qatar, this was one of the arguments around the Qatar World Cup, that is this actually doing them any good? Um, there's never been so much publicity uh, about the labor relations in Qatar, and nobody's ever been so cross with Qatar as they are now. But I think it's easy to get lost in your own bubble here. The basic fact is that the World Cup in Qatar don't care. It just didn't. It became clearer, more and more clear as we got closer to the tournament, as relations became ever more uncompromising. I kind of respected the straight talking in many ways a lot more than the flannel before that of like, essentially, this is what we're going to do. And if you have a problem with it, that's your problem. The, the World Cup was a huge, huge success for Qatar in so many ways. Most obviously, um, in, the, in the basic thing, I think it was, you know, going back more than a decade ago. And the question was asked, like, why, why are you actually doing, why are you doing this? You know, why, why are you bringing this on yourself? Why are you going through this? Why stage a World Cup? And you kind of just have to look at the map. Um, and the, the response was, we don't want to be another Kuwait. I mean, a, a part of that World Cup was simply raising the profile and simply saying, you're not going to march over the border and take our resources. We are now, we have a whole new built city where the world's international rich live that we wouldn't have had and wouldn't have been able to get people to live in if it weren't for the fact that we had this World Cup. And we're now, uh, it, the World Cup is about security and about global prominence. It wasn't about uh, people from Islington on Twitter caring about what happens um, in the human rights sphere, which appears to be a distinct sphere all its own that only some people care about. So anyway, I, I'm just saying that I don't think uh, many of these states particularly care about that side of things. You were asking Max about the flow of dirty money, um, of money rather, sorry. That, oof, what an interesting slip of the tongue here. The flow of money in the game, is it going to stop? No, it's not. And very briefly, two things. First of all, many people still think that football is undervalued, especially our American friends. And I think Kieran, I can see Kieran nodding and I think, we, I've never heard an American sports analyst saying anything like football is overvalued. No, 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 no. They think there's an awful, awful lot more money to be made out of it. And the other thing which you sh we shouldn't forget is that um, I remember talking to uh, somebody from uh, Interpol about 
football and the beauty of the game and so forth, the hidden beauties of the game. And he said, you know, there are three, the best three ways to launder money on the planet are the contemporary art world, the sports betting industry, and football. It's uh, so, uh, the, it's but not by chance that you see so many crooks and tarts, to quote Philip Larkin, joining the, the you know, jumping on aboard football, the football ship. And why there is so much money flowing in, which is money that honestly has got dubious origin because it's a, a fantastic washing machine. So we, ca- we, we will carry on seeing um, people moving in, uh, losing money, actually, by the way, but by losing money, they will have cleaned it. And so that's another reason why the flow of money is not going to stop. There are many other reasons, but it's one of them. It's not exactly the most optimistic of views, but... If you if you think that football is going to get bank to go bankrupt, no no no. At least there's the good side of it. Football is not going to go bankrupt. Kieran, can you see a time when it's been mentioned before that that Premier League games won't be in this country? You know, we see like the you know, isn't the Spanish Super Cup or whatever goes to Saudi Arabia? Like like when's that going to happen? Is that going to happen? It will happen when the amount of money that's put in front of Premier League club owners is so much that any local loyalties they have instantly disappear. Um, 18 out of 20 of the Premier League clubs are losing money on a day-to-day basis, and, and they're reliant on either player sales or owner uh, owner generosity to dig them out of those particular holes. We, we, we're now flatlining in terms of TV money. It's difficult to get more money off fans attending matches because prices are pretty steep already, and... It, to expand the ground cost a lot more. The sponsors aren't willing to pay more money. So, so where where is where is the future money going to come from? You either play more games or you play games elsewhere, or you manage to get those games um, abroad. Now, there's, there's two ways of doing it. A, you can physically uh, do that, which I think would provoke a lot of resistance from fan bases. So I think owners would have to be very careful. But I, I was on a uh, I was on a financing football panel recently. And um, have you have you attended Abba Voyage? Have you uh, you had the three D uh, Avatar experience of of nineteen seventy? Oh, Abba Voyage! No, no, right. I haven't. Well, it's coming to football. Hologram, a pitch, a pitch where they're all running around, but they're not actually there. That's right. And you have one in New York, and you have one in Mumbai, and you have one in Melbourne, and you have one in London. And so, if if Chelsea are away to to Manchester United, um, yeah, twenty thousand Chelsea fans will turn up if you've got this purpose built. Uh, stadium and the technology is there you know the, the, and that's what that's what these american owners this is why the glazers don't want to sell out now because they are convinced that in 10 years time we will have the the soccer dome in london and you won't just be having one football match there at the weekend because of the way that the matches are stratified for tv you can have five back to back over the course of the weekend the premier league's got a share of this uh, private equity's got a share of this and you are watching avatars of football players and you can get what 12 15 20,000 people into the soccer dome there and and the prices you pay if you go to this abba show it'll cost you 80 quid for a ticket and everybody loves it yeah i mean this is the first time where i really go but it's not the same. You know, like when I sound like the old man going, but you know, like there was contact there in London, but there was no contact there because they're two holograms. This is, you know. Uh, I mean, Max, you do, you're so conservative. You need to open yeah. your mind. I mean, this is just the cartel oh, clinging on desperately to the memories of your childhood. I mean, did you see the recent um, esports world championship? I know you say the word esports and people just slump into a coma of indifference, but it's. <laughs> 
so popular. There is so much money in it. It's so advanced. And AI is going to, is totally transforming the way those games work now. They have real, I mean, real, they have, they have a version of reality that's as real as anything else. Um, which is self-replicating. You play a game and these are not programmed patterns. It's learning from what you're doing. And it basically, it's as real as, uh, it's probably more real than playing a game against, say, a Jose Mourinho team, where it all seems very clunky and analog and pre-programmed. This is actually evolving and organic and full of self-expression and probably more entertaining. Um, the, the idea of avatars and holograms and Cristiano Ronaldo playing against Pelé um, seems ridiculous to us. But if you asked every single 13-year-old on the planet what they'd rather see, you'd probably, well, they'd probably say, I'd rather watch uh, something from lower down the pyramid, what you're talking about. That's, this is disgraceful, <laughs> disgusting practice, but they probably wouldn't. I mean, it's, it's always dangerous to lump all young people together. Young people are not of all course, the same yeah. person. The only thing they share is an, there are young people who like playing chess and young people who like smoking crack. Um, there are different interests for everybody. They're not all the same. Also, to be very wary of marketeers telling you that young people don't like long things or difficult things, which they did very successfully in cricket. Um, you know, marketing people don't like long things. That's the only thing that comes out of those studies. I, I'll tell you one thing, Barney, as somebody who's been a chess player at a decent level, uh, I would say in terms of the consumption of illicit substances, I think chess players can good serve as a good <laughs> game. <laughs> but is crack is crack is crack what you need to take to you know to beat Gary Kasparov? That's that's the question. Uh, yeah, I, d I don't think so. Actually, I don't think crack would be the one. No. That wouldn't be the, the substance of choice. Got to confess, not really sure what crack is. So <laughs> we'll move on. We'll move on to part three. Back in a second. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, uh, players are playing too much, Philippe. Are they going to end up playing every day in this futuristic football world? We know there'll be holograms, so it's easier. But Like Andre Onana. Apparently yeah. he's going to play two games in 24 hours. Yes, yeah, like Roy Carroll, didn't he? Isn't Roy Carroll famously do that? Yeah, well, then we'll be back to the good old days, Max, when they were not complaining about how many games they were playing. They were playing Christmas Eve and Christmas and, and Boxing yeah. Day and all this, and they were not complaining about it. Um, I think this is probably um, the thin end of the wedge when it comes to the evolution of the game, because um, I think there's got to be one moment where finally Fifth Pro, who has been saying for years and years and years, keeps saying, we're playing too much. Too many. Look at all the injuries. Look at all the problems people are having, physical and also mental health problem linked to that. Uh, think as well of the environmental cost of, of what we're talking about here, which is absolutely colossal. There's a moment when I think uh, the players will have to say, no, sorry, we're downing tools. We're downing tools. We cannot play 60 or 70 games a, a, a per year. Not at the kind of tempo rhythm that that is now the tempo and the rhythm of, of modern football and that might be I think if we're talking about reasons to hope what I'm hoping is that the people that football genuinely cannot do without it can probably do without fans uh, we could have holograms of fans but it cannot do without players and there's a moment where the players say well enough is enough and, and also the financial rewards we're getting for that are not commensurate to the effort that we that is asked from us and I, I don't know what and you know I'm Karen and, and Barney, you've probably, like me, seen statement after statement after statement of FIFA Pro. Every time there is a change in the calendar saying we cannot go any further, there has been no consultation. But the day might come when the players actually decide, the players' union decide, we can't have any more of that. We're not playing. We're striking. 
and this might be this is one of my big hopes actually max that the, the change the proper change is going to come from from the players because otherwise yes they're going to add to the list i mean the 2025 club world cup when you think about it 38 games talking about english clubs here 38 games in the premier league season then you've got the expanded uh, group phase with 10 games in the champions uh, league then you've got the internationals then you'll get also let's not forget the uh, um, continental cups that like asia and and africa like we have this this year then we have the champions league uh, being played at the end of may then we will have the club world cup with probably a team that was in the final of the of the champions league taking place from the 12th of july 13th of june sorry to the 12th of july and then we start again this is totally impossible it, it is totally impossible does that mean kieran that a, there'll be a push to make the Premier League smaller. And B, clubs will say, hang on, a 25 isn't enough. We need a 30. So the, the top clubs will just like hoover up more players and sort of keep them even if they don't play that much. Yeah, I, th- I think we, we will move to even more of a two-tier system that we have at present. If you're in the Champions League, um, you've got eight great group games. Uh, at The A22 proposals was to have 14 group games under um, their... Uh, their scenario, um, and all of this will add up. You will have to have you have to have bigger squads. Players will not be able to play sixty games a season because the sports scientists will say that the players aren't physically one hundred percent, and also the players will be picking up the, the level of soft in, soft tissue injuries that we're seeing, which have become increasingly prominent. You know, Brighton's first season in the in Europe this league, but for, for as a fan, it's absolutely brilliant. If the players and the manager want it, but but the squad isn't simply able to cope. And and we're seeing that, you know, Newcastle, again, it's their first season in Europe for a few years. They've had an injury crisis with, with uh, you know, other clubs. We're seeing it more and more. And that's on the back of shifting the World Cup to winter, reducing the amount of recovery time in the summer. So these are elite athletes. You wouldn't do that to Usain Bolt. You wouldn't do that to a racehorse. Why are we doing it to footballers? Um, I, I work with the PFA. They are genuinely concerned because it's it's their members who are either having to to play football when they're not able to be the, the elite athletes they want to be, or they're suffering longer and longer injuries, which of course have an, has an impact upon their long term careers. I think fans care about this, Barney, but at the same time, you know, the purpose of football for most people is not to sit on a Zoom call and analyse what you know the European Super League will look like in 15 years' time. It's to forget about how your week's been and just go and sit next to your mate and watch it or go to the pub and watch the game. So, like, for most normal fans, they just want to watch the football that is happening, don't they? It's interesting, isn't it? Because the one really visible... The only thing... <laughs> the only thing uh, football... People who care about football have collectively uh, taken direct action over, really, uh, among all the many crooked, abusive things is the European Super League announcement. That's the only thing that's literally brought people into the street. And that was a really strange combination of circumstances. It was the end of the COVID lockdown times. Um, there was a weird spirit abroad in the nation. I feel like it could have quite easily not happened, like many things in history that did happen and had a profound effect. It could have quite easily not happened. And you had a period of four or five days. You know, it's a bit like the... Um, 
you know, the Valkyrie plot against Hitler. There was this little period where you just needed to get through and get people on side and then the coup would have taken place and it would have been fine. But that, that window didn't went the other way and there was popular resistance. I wonder what people would realistically... I don't think it would happen again now. I don't think if they announced something similar tomorrow that people would be out in the street protesting again. I really don't. I think a large part of it was led by broadcasters. We had these incredibly passionate speeches from broadcasters on Sky, who whose whole model is based on the old thing. Uh, and I slightly question their ability to be guardians of, of everything that is holy in the game. But Gary Neville's incredibly passionate and lucid screeds about preserving all that is good and vital and, and precious to us did have an effect. You know, people suddenly felt mobilised. Here's something we can agree about. I mean, I don't know how much people care. I think it's an increasingly fractured world generally, and not just in football. I mean, you know, you 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 have um, the ability to kind of coalesce as aggressively polarised tribes on pretty much every subject. Is there enough unity to try and... Do people have, share the same opinions? I don't think it's conservative um, or stick in the mud of us to sit here saying that there are things that should be preserved in football because um, the culture of this thing is incredibly valuable and not all new new things are good. It's interesting when Philip referred to Philip Larkin earlier, um, the cast of Crooks and Tarts as a way of um, referring uh, uh, to, to people in charge of football. I mean, that was about England. Larkin was writing about England and about the country he'd grown up in and feeling that had been corrupted. So, I mean, things being corrupted is as old as things not being corrupted. Um, in a way, this is all very much in keeping with football, uh, that football should continue to eat itself. Maybe the greatest tradition the game has has been, I know that people will disagree with this, um, you know, run by a central body interested in maintaining its own power. It just happens that in the world now, it's hard to say the Super League doesn't reflect the power structure of the world as we see it right now. Um, so maybe football's just ahead of the game. Barney, I think the, the thing, the picture you paint of the fans is perhaps for me a little bit, it goes a bit against the grain of the fans that I'm working with. And perhaps it's because I'm working with those fans in various other countries. I'm sure that if you talk to people from the ultra movement in Germany, uh, you will find very, very strong resistance towards those ideas. I think if you talk to people who are club members in Sweden and Norway, where you also have the 50 plus one or the 100% rule, you will find the same thing. But those people have no locus standi to stop a European Super League. It was British, English, fans of English clubs that I'm talking about. Well, I mean, I'm, let's let's look beyond England because maybe the salvation of football will come from beyond. I don't know. But I also see uh, the fact that uh, I'm starting to see football fans from different leagues getting together uh, under the umbrella of you know, football's um, supporters Europe, for example, but also the fight against multi-club ownership, which is bringing... Uh, fans from clubs which are, you know, could be a Belgium, France, England, whatever, bringing them together to fight against that. So I do think that there is an element of of counter power which can exist, and the counter power, and perhaps that's where you wanted to lead us, Max. But if we have to have reasons to hope, it's precisely because these counter powers can exist and can grow. One of them being the players, and the other being the fans. Are the two categories of people whose advice and opinion is never sought by the people who decide what to do with the game. So I, I, I think that you, you perhaps you paint too negative. Also, for example, I don't think I'm mistaken when I say that the attendances for non-league football are growing in this country. 
which is showing that people do care about this type of football. And, you know, maybe that's that's for better. Maybe, uh, maybe our future of football is not going uh, to see... Um, uh, the, the soccer dome in, in Birmingham watching Real Madrid 1959 play against Ajax 1973, but going down your local club and uh, enjoying it. That's what I was going to ask, actually, Kieran, was, 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 you know, lower down the pyramid, right? What Do they just pick up the scraps and just have to deal with what they have to deal with? It seems very much down the pyramid. I suppose not entirely unlike this at the top as well, is you're so it's so defined by the people that run your club and you can be lucky or unlucky. But what do you see the, you know, as Philippe says, attendances are going up in, in non-league. I, I don't know where they are in the EFL, but there is obviously huge support base there, just talking about, you know, the English league. But but what is the future of, of that part of the, the you know, because everyone says the pyramid is so important. I think that's why can people complained about the Super League was this idea there was no relegation was just anathema to us. Whereas there are other countries, the A League in Australia, right, doesn't have relegation, right? You know, it's, it's it's not anathema everywhere, but it is for most of European football. As as far as lower league and non league football is concerned, it's not it's not the same sport as Premier League football or Champions League football. It it attracts a different audience. Um, the the crowds are absolutely brilliant. Looking at it through through my lens, which is the financial one, the National League is is the worst in in football though, because you've got clubs like Stockport County getting promoted, losing ninety grand a week. You know, Salford City they lost a lot of money. Um, the losses in in the National League are bigger than those in League Two and equivalent to those in League One, and you're reliant upon that that sense of of local and civic belonging far greater than than exists at, at Premier League clubs. So it's it's a, it's a different experience. It's a great experience as well because I, I love love going to it. I love Cambridge United, and obviously it's the Premier League is kind of irrelevant to them, right? What happens in the Big Six? But but would it be the same if that wasn't there? Like like it's this idea, right? You're a Brighton fan, you know, you've been through that. Like it's this idea that we could get to there. So if there wasn't there. Would I still, does that make sense? Like, I couldn't get there if those six disappeared. Like, would that wreck the whole pyramid? I feel it would have such a dramatic impact on all of it. I, I, I don't don't think it would, because I think we, we're realistic. You know, if the FA Cup still exists, I think, you know, as a Cambridge United fan or, or a, a non-league fan, that's what you're hoping for, uh, is, is to get that, that, that day of memories. Um, and then you... And, but deep down, we all know, you know, it's a bit like the, the rumours about Father Christmas not existing. You know, deep down, we know well, it, it might not be true. Um, and uh, you you have to accept it in the way that it that it is. Have we solved it? Have we have we have we worked out what football is going to be like, Barney? No, have we just had a, quite an interesting conversation that that I I don't think we ever I don't think I ever expected to. But I've I've found it interesting. But I don't know if I know what it'll look like still. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly haven't solved anything. I've just moaned about stuff. Um, uh, if we were supposed to be proposing a, an acceptable or even likely version of the future, I think a few things have come up. I mean, what Philippe was just saying about the idea of counterpower was very interesting, and probably we should have just done a podcast on that because we all know the problems and we spent a long time <laughs> stating them in a state of despair before a few kind of shafts of light appeared at the end. Um, I think it's important to note that um, for all the kind of doom stuff, um, and it's easy to say this within England with the Premier League, that, I mean, football is 
brilliant. I mean, it's uh, the level of the Premier League product, uh, if we're going to call it that, is incredible. It's brilliant. Um, Even as someone who spent a lot of time moaning about it, an entire career complaining about it, I have to admit that this is an incredible thing and the kids have never had it so good. The Champions League, I think, is brilliant. It's a brilliant competition. Um, I travel to watch quite a lot of it and it's fantastic. So something's going right. Uh, It's just the feeling that I feel like we're uh, on the edge of a precipice where things, as Philippe says, uh, there's a change that's coming from above, uh, from interested parties who've had a look at this and thought, yep, I want a part of that, and which is not organic and which is not growing out of some need um, or some desire other than the desire of a small cartel of very rich people. And I think that's, that's the problem the game has. Also, if you were to do this podcast in France, Germany or Belgium, a lot of it would be about how the Premier League is, is ruining other leagues and hoovering up not just players, but talent, expertise, interest, local clubs where the kids just wear Premier League shirts and don't. I mean, the Premier League, it's remarkably hypocritical for anyone in the Premier League to say that the Super League will kill football, anyone who's benefiting from that, because uh, the Premier League is a massive problem for everyone who's not in it in Europe. And that's essentially where this comes from. And uh, it's one of the people never want to give up power. But um, in cricket, for example, there's talk of the big three nations having to fund other nations to keep playing test cricket. Otherwise, the game will die. Um, I can see no situation where the Premier League agrees to give up some of its market dominance in order to keep the sport healthy in other countries because, hey, just hoover up those consumers. But it it is a problem. The Premier League is in many ways the problem um, because of its own success. Um, Interestingly, it has a huge pyramid supporting it. So maybe people should pay attention to why it's so successful. And if you were in Yaoundé or Accra, it's not just the Premier League you would be talking about, it's also the Jupiler League and the Liga. We have to see beyond not just England, but also beyond Europe. Because the biggest imba- imbalance is there, is continental imbalance. And the thing is that the Club World Cup is not going to address this imbalance at all. Because guess what? FIFA has introduced in Africa, it's a Super League, Right? It's introduced a Super League in which one of the clubs happened to be owned by the president of CAF, Mr. Motsepe, Mamelodi Sundowns. So we can see that it's not aimed at transforming the game to make it truly global in terms of um, financial balance. It's intended to make it global for a super elite, which can be found in every single continent. So I think I was, I was trying to say something hopeful, and I've said something which makes me despair even more of, of, what the, of what the future holds for us, which is basically we are all, we, we have to see beyond our, our own borders, but, and, and also to see it beyond European borders, um, which is something that we hardly ever do. Finally, Kieran, are you hopeful? Oh, I'm, I'm very hopeful. It, it's still 11 versus 11. You, you can't have one very, very rich person being able to outbid all of the other very, very rich persons. So you know, the, money, the money has flowed to, to footballers, um, and they they spend it as they uh, they see fit. But we're, we're turning up as we've never done before. Uh, subscriptions to the broadcasters are very very high. The number of people. Uh, we, let's face it. We all know a big Dave down the pub who can also get us a far cheaper version of the broadcast uh, product. Non leagues good. Crowds in in continental Europe are good. German football culture is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I, I get the opportunity to teach all over the world and Premier League's 
fantastic export. It's the first thing I get asked you know, as soon as people know I, I, I work in the city of Liverpool and Manchester, um, you know, our United City, Everton, Liverpool, whatever it's going to be. Um, fo football's great. It, it's it's what what else in life makes you hug strangers? Good question. Drugs. Yeah, drugs. You can cope with amounts of alcohol. Election results. You know, New Year's Eve 25 years ago. And that's pretty much it. You're right. All right. Well, look, let's have this conversation again in five years if we're all still employed. I would have one thing to add is that we have talked about the men's game and that we should do the same thing yeah, absolutely. for the women's game. To talk about both in the same breath, I don't think would be quite right because we're talking about the same sport and two different sports at the same time. And the way that the women's game is going to evolve is going to have a huge impact on the men's game as well. But that is something which I think we should be looking at and perhaps with people who know more about it than, than we do ourselves. But we should, we should be having a look at it. And not just uh, because there are more people going to games of, of Arsenal uh, and Chelsea than there has ever been before or because of the Lionesses and all of that. But it's very interesting to see how another template could actually be proposed by the women's game. To be absolutely honest, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm very pessimistic as well for this one, but I think it's a conversation we should be having in the future. And we'll do it. All right. Thanks, Philippe. Thank you. Thank you, Barney. Cheers, everyone. Uh, thanks, Kieran. Thank you very much. Uh, Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanders. This is The Guardian. 